This is Farmland. Coming up, Dr. Owen Ryan, Senior Superintending Veterinary Inspector in charge of TB policy at the Department of Agriculture, and Frank Brady, Chairman of Monaghan IFA, are here to discuss Ireland's TB problem. Lorca McCabe, the Deputy President of the ICMSA, and Karen Duclo, Cattle Specialist at Chagask Moor Park, are here to weigh up winter fodder concerns as farmers prepare to house stock. And Brendan Dunford, the manager of the award-winning Burren programme, will look ahead to next week's Winterage Festival. But first, Sylvester Phelan has this report on the personal stress and financial difficulties farmers face when locked out with bovine TB. Michael Collins is a suckler farmer from Kilfenora, County Clare. Recently, Michael's herd went down with TB. Um, the herd went down about six weeks ago. Uh, we had three reactors, two cows and the bull. Locally, guys had big numbers, like 20, 25 cows. I'm fortunate enough, I only had two cows and the bull. Um, it seems to go in waves. Every five or six years, we have maybe two, three reactors. Um, and then they're taken out and away we go again for five or six years again. That has been the way for the last about 20 years. When asked if he had suspicions as to the cause of the outbreak, Michael was unsure. There's a lot of wildlife in the barn. I honestly, I genuinely, I don't know. Uh, people are blaming the badger. I suppose the wildlife certainly have an input into it. In the barn, you have a lot of water supplies that are on the ground and cattle drink off the low water supply stream or whatever, maybe they pick it up there. The Clare farmer noted that, following recent TB outbreaks on both his neighbour's farm and his own, there are plans to take a number of badgers out of the area for testing. Blood tests were also conducted for the first time on the reactors. I suppose the biggest effect is probably not being able to sell when we want to. Um, it's whalens we have. They are perishable enough cattle. Um, a lot of farmers in the burn may not have winter's facilities for them. Um, it's not, Wainlands, it doesn't really, the grasses around here are more suitable to stronger, older cattle. Wainlands, it doesn't really suit them. Also, of course, there's the financial side of it. Um, payments and that are tend to be structured so as you pay back in uh, at the end of the year. And if you can't sell, it messes up that. When asked if he believes that Ireland's TB eradication targets for 2030 will be met, Michael said that for his region, this is unlikely. If it's the wildlife that are a big cause of it, what do you do? Maybe you can vaccinate, I don't know. Now, I also thought that brucellosis wouldn't be eradicated, but we seem to have got the better of that. Um, I honestly don't know, but I don't believe they will in the burn, but you never know. On TB levels in Ireland have reduced significantly over the last number of years and the aim now is to be bovine TB free by 2030. Is that target realistic? Well Claire, it is realistic but it's an ambitious target. It's not going to be easy to achieve it but I think we've no choice about it. We have to do more than we're doing at the moment. We've just heard uh, that you know terrible story from Claire about the burden that TB is causing on that farmer and you know I'm acutely conscious of the burden that TB causes on farmers, not just financial, the mental stress, the worry, the, uh, the uncertainty. Um, and we really have to do more to remove that stress on farmers and to reduce that burden. Uh, you know, it's true levels at the moment are lower than they've ever been historically, 
The program has been really successful. Only a few years ago, we had 40,000 reactors a year. We're down now to about 16, 17,000 reactors a year, but that's still too many. There's 2,200 <coughs> farmers locked up with TB at the moment. That's lower than ever before in the last few years, but that's still too many. Um, and I think what's important is we have to focus on protecting the 97% of farmers who don't have TB and also working with those whose herds do have TB to get them clear and help them stay clear so they don't keep having repeat breakdowns. We need to do more on that. The way we can go about that is working in partnership. That's why we've set up this TB Stakeholders Forum and I'm delighted that along with the other stakeholder organisations and farm organisations, the IFA are present at that as well. Uh, this is not a department problem and it's not something that just the department by itself can fix. It's something that we need to work together to address. And we need to decide together what is the best way that we can do more than we're doing at the moment to reduce this terrible burden. Um, this is really about working in partnership together. One of the other key things we want to do with this is make sure that farmers you know, get the message that there actually are things they can do to reduce their own risk of TB. That doesn't mean they can eliminate the risk, but we want to do better at talking to farmers about ways that steps they can take to reduce that risk. That's why we're trying to reach out more. We have a series of public meetings. We've uh, had several public meetings in the last few weeks. Frank attended one of them. Um, and we're going to have those around the country in the next while. We want to, this to be working in partnership together to reduce that, that terrible burden on farmers. But it is an ambitious target. There's no doubt it's not going to be easy. There's many factors at play with this disease. And there's no easy solution or quick solution. But we really have to do more. Frank, in your area, up in Monaghan, it has gone from one of the lowest incident rates of bovine TB to one of the highest incident rates over the last 18 months. Why do you think that's happening? Um, <coughs> we've, uh, there's lots of reasons. Number one, I don't know whether there's enough contact with the other side of the border. I know Brexit is coming in, but the Badger doesn't know about Brexit. So I think, they, I don't know what they are like in the north with their levels of TB compared to what we are. But we're a border county and I think a lot of the problems could be Badgers coming across at night time and setting up new sets in this side of the border. So that's one. And number two, there was an issue too that sometimes all of the animals weren't being taken off the farm. We we have discussed this with Owen and we've agreed that going forward that they would probably try and take it off and it seems to come in batches like if animals that's left behind there have been given trouble in the beginning but then they've turned out to be negative those animals two or three years down the line tend, generally tend to become positive so I think we need a program of where we go in and we clean out the whole thing if there's a it seems to come uh, that the think now that it might have been animals that were all born around the same year and they seem to be carriers or whatever the case may maybe with some whatever they were contact they had when they were young and those generally reinfect so if we could try and get a policy of getting rid of all those animals and starting with a clean slate would be a big help. The department have been uh, very helpful and have had a lot of meetings with us in the last couple of months and I think we have made progress in where we are and I think we need to make more progress either we go into the vaccination program with the badgers the, the I heard the startling to talk about the vaccination program and maybe I can be proved wrong here but I think they've only vaccinated a thousand badgers and there's I don't know how many is in the country, but there's 80, 80 or 90,000 there. So vaccinating 1,000 won't, uh, won't, won't be any help. We need to go with a policy of either vaccinating all or maybe going with a, a slightly more culling rate. Owen, how exactly does it spread? Is it, is it by contact, uh, animal to animal contact? Um, and then on the badger situation, there are some people saying that the, the badger is being scapegoated in this and that the deer um, also are contributing to the problem. 
What's your take on that? Well, there are TB spreads in several different ways. And I suppose that's one of the reasons it's such a challenge to eradicate it, because there's not just one way it spreads. So, for instance, um, the most important way is cattle to cattle spread, as you suggested. So infected cattle that are in contact with other infected cattle. That's the reason that a large part of our program is testing animals, looking for those infected cattle, <coughs> taking them out. Herds that have infection, we restrict them so that those animals can't move elsewhere. But it also spreads locally, so it can spread across a fence or locally in an area. It can be spread by infected wildlife, and badgers would be the principal source in the country. Um, it can also be spread by uh, poor biosecurity, so that could be contamination of uh, an area or of equipment. And one of the messages that is important that we deliver to farmers is, you know, you can do something to improve your biosecurity. It won't eliminate all your risk, but in the same way that you can reduce a lot of disease spread through that, more attention to biosecurity, more attention to uh, being careful what animals are bought in, that can reduce the risk as well. Uh, regarding the, the uh, threat posed by deer, um, there has been a lot of talk of, of deer lately, but we haven't found evidence that deer have a role in spreading TB to cattle in most of the country. Now in Wicklow, there was a study carried out and the Department of Agriculture carried out in conjunction in cooperation with farmers locally and, uh, and uh, hunters there, where the same strains of TB were found to be circulating in deer, cattle and badger. Um, but Wicklow is a, a, you know, there's a particularly high density of deer there and it wasn't clear who, which animal was infecting which other ones. In other parts of the country, uh, we've said to uh, at local public meetings and we've said this up in, in Monaghan, uh, we're perfectly happy to test deer which are shot for TB, but there simply isn't evidence right now that deer are a significant source of spread to TB in these areas. That's not to say we're not happy to test these deer and look into it. We're interested in what works, not what doesn't work. Um, Frank mentioned badger vaccination. We think that's a really important uh, development lately. We've spent several years uh, trying to address this. Um, badgers have been shown in Ireland to spread TB to cattle. Now, it, it has been controversial, and I suppose there's some sections of society uh, who would say, well, you know, is it right to ever kill wildlife to protect domestic animals? Well, you know, I would think that it is justified, and I suppose that's our judgment as a society, is that it's the right thing to do in circumstances where it's been established that badgers locally have been infecting cattle and infecting farmers and farm families. But also, we don't want to cull badgers where there's an alternative. And the department spent several years, and actually there was some great research carried out right across Ireland in field trials, showing that where you vaccinate badgers, and as Frank says, it has to be enough badgers in an area, you can actually deliver the same level of protection to cattle locally, and thereby to farmers and farm families, as if you remove the badgers. That's why uh, we've now started a policy of badger vaccination. That doesn't mean we're going to stop culling badgers. But it does mean that where we can expand vaccination, as Frank suggests, we're going to try and do so and deliver the same level of protection to cattle and to farmers and farm families. But it's also the case that there may still continue to be areas where there are severe outbreaks and it may be necessary in the same way that we remove infected cattle, we may also have to remove badgers in those areas. But this is a multifactorial disease and there's not one single thing we, we need to do to address it. We need to look at all these things. And that's why I think the discussions we're having with all the stakeholders of the TB forum are so important. Because while what we're doing at the moment is effective, it's just not effective enough. We're not, we, we can't say we're happy with where we are. We need to do more. And the way to decide what more we can do to drive TB levels down further and reduce the burden on farmers is through discussing with all the stakeholders, you know, what are the realistic options that we can do to do more to stop the spread of this disease. And Owen, if the cattle are removed, if the badger is removed, if the reactor is taken out of the area, can the area remain, can the environment remain contaminated? And if so, for how long afterwards? So it can remain contaminated. So the, the bacteria that causes TB is a very resistant bacteria and it can survive in the environment for weeks or even months. 
And that's one of the reasons that when farms have an outbreak, um, uh, when the reactors are removed, farmers are required to clean and disinfect areas where the reactors may have been. So this would depend on the circumstances. It may be a particular part of the farm or it may be um, some equipment. There's a reason for that. But it's, it's important to remove that residual infection that may be left behind. But it's not just environmental contamination. There can be animals which are latently infected with TB which don't test positive to the test and they may uh, remain after a, 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 an infected herd after it goes clear and several years later those animals can develop TB in the same way that humans with latent TB can get it years later. One of the other things we need to look at is you know, um, where there's animals which were alive in a herd during a previous breakdown, you know, is it wise to still have them there now? And One of the things which farmers with problems with TB can think about is whether they might choose to cull animals, older animals which were alive during a previous breakdown. So we need to look at environmental contamination. We need to look also at residual infection within the herd. And that's why I think an increase in emphasis on biosecurity can really deliver results for farmers. Frank, there is a drive at the moment on forestry for further planting in areas in counties such as Leitrim or Wicklow, where you have then increased, increased wildlife populations as a result. Down the road, um, would you be concerned about uh, the impact of the drive on forestry and how that could potentially contribute uh, to, the, to the TB problem? Without a shadow of a doubt, I happened to, in one of my many lives before I came to Monaghan, I lived in New Zealand. And in 1984-85, and then New Zealand were just starting to get into deer farming, and they were putting up the fences. It was a, it came in, but it never really took off. And their main concern at that stage was the wildlife deer, because New Zealand would be very much forest, you know, and, and all that. And they would say then at that stage that the deer were definitely going to cause a hassle. So definitely the deer, and the more we go into forestation, the, the greater chance we have. And now there is a link now as well, and maybe Owen could might verify this or not, that they're saying that foxes now could be a carrier as well. And we know the country is full of foxes at the minute. There's, there's more foxes now than ever there was. So we have a problem with wildlife. The more we let them produce and all that, the greater chance we have of infecting our animals. But uh, going back to a point that Owen made there about uh, older cattle being left on the farm, that have been from a thing. Maybe it's time now that we could go back and maybe get some kind of a compensation level that those farmers could replace those animals with like for like. I'm not saying give them over the odds. I'm just giving them the difference between what they would get in the factory and replace it with a, a clean animal. And maybe that might be an issue we could look at on going down the road. And if there's farms that have been consistently uh, getting reinfected, maybe it's time to take out the whole lot. I know we do take out the whole lot when we go up to a level, but maybe come down a little bit, bring the, the down a little bit and make it easier that a farmer can start afresh because there's plenty of, mostly dairy farming and there's plenty of dairy stock in the country at the minute, so it would be no issue to be able to go back and give a little bit of compensation. And I, I don't want to be going down the road of always looking money for farmers because that's not what I'm about. But on the level of compensation that's available at the moment, the system that's in place at the moment, is that working, Frank? I, what are I farmers say, saying? I would say, yes, it's working in 95 to 98%. You'll always have farmers that no matter what they get, they won't be happy. You know, that's just human nature in us. We always think our animals are worth more. But I think of the rule of thumb, I don't think compensation is, I think it's fairly fair and fairly accurate. Wouldn't you agree with that, Owen? I think I would, Frank. Yeah, I think we have we have a, a fairly sophisticated system in place of trying to ensure that farmers do get full market value for their animals. But that's not to suggest for a moment that that compensates them for all the losses with TB, not just the financial losses, but the stress and the hardship. Mm -hmm. But it is the case that we monitor uh, sales every week in March, and 
uh, we grade the animals and then we do have a way that when animals are taken as reactors they're compensated the amount that those animals would have got if they had gone to the market the, the week prior to that and um, you know there's I, I think there's a, a it's it's fair and I think it reflects it delivers fairness on both sides and generally speaking when as Frank said there'll always be individual cases where you know something might be up for discussion and people might say well they might feel happier or less happy but overall, I think we have a fair system that delivers fairness for the taxpayer who pays the compensation and to farmers. But look, it is to accept it doesn't for a moment compensate all the stress and hardship and, and other costs of TB. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thank you both very much for coming into us. Next, farmers are looking to house their stock for the winter, but are fodder reserves holding up? Siobhan Walsh has this report. Shane O'Loughlin has been feeding silage as a large proportion of his cow's diet for the past 10 days. His autumn cows are now housed for the winter and Shane estimates that he has a 10% feed deficit. We did a feed budget there oh, about six weeks ago and that came up based on a five month winter. We're about 10% down, so depending on the spring, we're not too bad actually. We're, we're, we should be there, thereabouts. Get a, get a bit of a dry autumn there, keep some of the younger stock out later, we should be okay. He grow some beet here and now with a terrible crop this year, some of it didn't germinate for four months after it was sowed, which was a bit of a surprise, but um, the beet was grown pr primarily for the uh, autumn calvers. Um, even with the reduced crop, we should have enough to see us through. Uh, we have a little bit of whole crop, which we don't normally grow, but, but we did this year. A small crop, but it'll, it'll help as well. Um, the dry cows were kept in, and normally the dry cows, the autumn calvers, are left out on grass for the autumn and given allocations but this year when we dried them off we kept them in just to save the ground so we might be able to keep a bit of grass for some younger stock keep them out later so dry, the dry cows you can see behind me here they've been in now and we're getting a bit of zero grass with the milkers there and silage there in their dry spell after first good silage we would keep about 60 acres and uh, it was designated for zero grazing and for second cut and um, you'd be hoping to get maybe 40 45 into the pit for second cut and we got five of it in so we zero grazed over 50 acres of ground instead of 20. Um, it kept us going, kept the cows going during the summer, but um, it's left the, the second cut pit a bit reduced all right now. Shane has been feeding a lot of meal this season. His feed bill has doubled. To stretch out uh, silage for dry cows, we'll probably put a bit of straw through it, mixed through diet feeder as well. Um, sometimes we have done it, didn't do it last year, but this year I'd say we will do it to stretch things. The summer's drought has also affected Shane's water supply. The farm here, the yard here would be supplied by springs that we would harvest and pump around the place, but normally they would slow down a little bit in the autumn, but um, they slowed down very early in the summer and they dried up completely about two weeks ago. So we're just, we're drawing all the water from a local river to keep the farm going. Shane planted Westerwolds after his whole crop silage and has still to bale this crop. When the uh, the bit of whole crop was taken off, we um, went in with Westerworlds, we direct drilled in straight after and um, while it took a while to get established because the ground was just so hard and dry, it, it seems to have done okay and hope to get a few bales off it now sometime before the end of October, if, whenever the land holds up and the weather's right and they had bulk up a bit. I'm joined now by Lorcan McCabe, the Deputy President of the ICMSA, and Karen Duclo, Cattle Specialist at Chagask Moor Park. Karen, there is a fodder shortage in some parts of the country, but has the good weather in recent weeks alleviated the situation? 
Yeah, to some degree it has, particularly in certain locations where there's been extra round bales being made, particularly in areas uh, like West Cork, uh, which had a, a significant deficit they've made up some of the ground. But I suppose what I would ask people would be still to sit down and look at what silage they have, um, what stock they're going to carry over the winter and do the sums now rather than, than later. Um, we have figures from a September survey, which was done, I suppose, just before that spell of good weather and half of the farmers surveyed and that had about a 20-25% deficit. So there's likely to be deficits in areas, uh, particular pockets and even talking to some farmers uh, in Cork, many farmers are short that 20-30% and just to, to, to make plans now rather than leaving it till January and February will be our message. Lorcan, what about your members? What are they saying? How prepared are farmers, do you think, at this stage now when we're looking at bringing cattle in over the next few weeks? Yeah, well, you know, Karen and our colleagues in Shagusta have, <coughs> since the beginning of the summer, they have pulled out all the stops to tell farmers what to do and encourage them to grow, grow extra fodder. On the ground, I suppose, our members, if you come up, we say, uh, me, Cavan, Monaghan, and the whole west of Ireland, they seem to be okay. And while I say they're okay, they're okay, especially after us getting the last two months of excellent weather. There's a lot of round bales has been made since since the, we wouldn't have expected since the first of September. They are with a little bit of of the right work. They are okay. Heading down further, Kilkenny, Wexford, Waterford, parts of North Cork, Leash, especially too. They are not they're not over the hump yet, and they need to to to. They need to conserve fodder. They need to, as Karen said too, they have to get it right before Christmas. And the message is going out to them, and a lot of them is getting there. But there is going to be farmers that is going to be 20% short. And, uh, you know, they have to act very, very quick. You know, it has to be done, in, in everyone's opinion, and Karen too, it has to be done before, before Christmas, because you can't start stretching, especially on dairy farmers, farms. When cows start calving, they have to get full, full food and full production. The other thing too we've been saying, and Karen may be going into more detail, is that, you know, the feeding space, when you're stretching ration, you have to have the space for every cow to eat, to give her the amount, you know, especially when the cow is dry, give her the amount of silage uh, restricted and some extra 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 feed, we say extra nuts or whatever, concentrates. You know, but in general people does realise the problem, but uh, it has alleviated an awful lot since the 1st of September. At the 1st of September, we were in dire straits, but, you know, it has alleviated an awful lot since that. Karen, there's been a lot of silage cutting and baling, even in recent weeks, quite mm. unusual, into, into October. What about the quality of the fodder that's out there, the other options that, that farmers might be looking at? Um, should farmers be concerned, or what advice would you give them on how to, how to check for quality? Yeah, I suppose the obvious thing is to go and get that silage tested so that you know what DMD it is and then you can put the correct level of meal feeding with that and as Larkin was saying you might be adding on top of that meal feeding further when you're restricting the silage so get it tested is the first thing and go about doing that now to get results if it's six weeks in the pit or in a bale you can test it. Um, I suppose two areas for concern with silage would be um, some of the stuff harvested in September that may have not got a wilt. Um, some of the later stuff did, and I, I would expect very good preservation with that. But some of the earlier stuff didn't get a wilt. 
it may have preservation issues due to high nitrates. So um, if I had that in my yard, I would be looking at feeding it earlier in the winter because it may not hold. It may not be the best product to hold. Um, I suppose concerns with some of the stuff that was caught early in the year would be that it went late um, and likely to have higher stem quantity in it, um, which means it needs higher uh, meal feeding levels to get the same level of performance. So if you're someone who's used to cutting silage in the third week of May and it got pushed out till the middle of June, um, you are probably looking at feeding a couple of kilos of ration um, per head to weanlings uh, and calves, suckler cows, or maybe up to three kilos. But the first step is to get it tested so you know wh what you're dealing with exactly. Lorcan, there's a section out there in the farming community who put this issue down to overstocking. Mm. What do you make of that view? It's not overstocking because <clears throat> we have relatively the same stock in the country as we've had. The, the stock hasn't gone up that much. There is people says that and they're, I suppose, they're fixated on the, the, the dairy farmer that has increased from 50 cows to 110. But most of them is efficient farmers. And it's not, it's not, it's all across the board there's a shortage. It's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tar them with that. Now, it's, 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 that's not the problem. I think it's just, you were after, you know, the, the, the whole wet back here la end of last year and the late spring and it was straight into drought this year. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the, the blame on the, the people that has expanded now. I wouldn't do that. You know, it's across the board, the shortage. So they are no, no worse relative to their size than anyone else is. The only thing is that with, if you have obviously 200 cows, a 10% shortfall is an awful lot less than a 10% shortfall of 50 cows. But, but proportionately, no, they are no worse. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't attribute blame to them for causing the problem. Karen, do you have a view on that? Has overstocking played a role in, in the current fodder shortage? Well, obviously, as Lorcan was saying, if you have more cows uh, and you end up with a percentage deficit, it's going to be harder to fill that gap. And in certain localities, that caused a local deficit where there was large herds in a, in a small area buying up fodder last year. However, as Lorcan correctly pointed out, when we did the survey in September, the level of shortage was actually pretty even spread across enterprises, both beef and dairy, and across stocking weights, which is kind of surprising. But when you think about it, if farms are used to operating at a certain stocking weight, they're used to producing that much grass and would have been all hit almost the same amount by the weather conditions to a certain percentage. So it's across the board, um, as Lorcan was saying. Lorcan, a lot of farmers out there hoping for a mild short winter ahead, um, but we have been hit with two storms already just in recent weeks. Um, what if that doesn't happen? What if the winter is, is quite difficult? What if we have a repeat of last year? Yeah, well, first of all, we're not going to have the repeat this, this end of year because we've got, even in our part of the country, neighbours says to me, you know, we're after getting a month free without silage now. So, you know, the foreseeable future, it looks good till the 1st of November. That's a fantastic start. I know, uh, and you're looking at one of the farmers too, is hoping for a, 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 an early spring. Um, you know, if the, the autumn is good so far and there is, the ground is dry, so people should be fit to graze stock up even in, down in, in the south part of the country, possibly well on into, into November. I know if we get a horrendous spring with cold, wet weather, it could pose a problem. It could because most farmers, you know, the idea of the, the stakeholders group was to set up a, a buffer of, of maybe eight weeks silage. And the way this year came, we weren't able to do that because it, we went from straight into 
cold, wet weather to basically desert conditions in some places. So, you know, I would be a little bit concerned that if we get a very late spring, that there could be, we could be under pressure now, we say, after Patrick's Day, late, late uh, March, up to mid-April, mid you know, there would be a concern there if we get in extremes. But look, we're after getting them and hopefully we, we, we'll get away with them. I'd be more concerned too, possibly, you know, with farmers that have, during the drought all year, they've exhausted their, their, their resources, their, their, as well as their feed resources, their, their financial resources. That, you know, that's what I'd be more concerned of going on into the spring. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Because you know, the, the financial resources, the cost of all this yeah. um, has been a real burden on farms over the last over the summer months and into the autumn. It has, and the farther you go south, the, the, the worse it has been because obviously obviously they were buying more concentrates all summer to keep to keep the cows going. And I think in fairness to farmers, they have fed the cows well. You know, there's you hear rumours of cows being thin, but in, in general, cows is coming into the end of the year in great condition and milk is up all over the country. So the, the farmers has done their part. They've kept the milk up, they've kept the cows fed well, but that's been at a cost, you know, in some cases now and, and up until recently there didn't seem to be any pull extra on the overdraft, but we would be concerned that there would be, you know, that all things has to be paid within the year contractors, everything will be paid from now on, basically, and that there'll be a little bit of concern that come on the spring, you have the lapse, we say farmers dry the cows, you have the lapse of no money coming in from maybe January and February, that we would be a little bit concerned that the people that were stretched during the summer, you know, they might have, have financial problems. Now, we've talked to all the banks and all the banks have packages out there and I think are quite willing to deal with farmers. And the message, the message I'd like to put forward here is that, two messages, I suppose, and as Karen, I'd check this, the amount of sailors you have, the quality of sailors you have. If you have a problem, correct it as soon as possible. And the other thing is, if you see you have a, a problem with finance, go to your banks now, straight away, and don't just, don't just get X amount to keep you going till Christmas. Do a complete review and make yourself, we say, financially solid until next the, the creamery checks comes in next next March. And you know, talking to banks, look, we all live out about them and we have problems with them, but they are quite willing to deal with farmers and not come for some today and then at Christmas we say run out and come back again. That you know, on the both on the feed budget and the financial budget, I think the message should be, you know, to sit down and do it now and look at Chagast and, and, and your advisors will do that and are, in my opinion, doing an excellent job on it. Karen, finally, just what actions can farmers take now or in the next few weeks if they're short on forage? Um, I suppose there's a few things we can look at doing. Um, as Lorcan says, we've had a great autumn, so we can set up the farm now to stay out grazing as long as we can and still set up the farm to get out early in the spring. So that's using the autumn planner to use what grass is there. So we're looking at closing up the farm in rotation, grazing and closing, and having about half of the farm closed by the 1st of November uh, and not going back into that again until the spring. And that way we're extending the grazing both ways but you can't do that unless you close in rotation. So that's the first thing I would look at is the grass side of the house. Then you're looking at establishing what the deficit is. So that's counting up bales, measuring the pitch and testing your silage so you know what feed you have in the yard. The next step is looking at the number of animals you have. Um, count out the number of months your winter is likely to be, the number of animals, do a budget. If you realise then you're short, you're looking at, I suppose, three main options. You're looking at buying in extra fodder, as such as silage or hay, if you can get it. 
um, or you're looking at doing what Lorcan is talking about, saying, okay, I have 70% of what I need. So if I start stretching the silage now and restricting it at the start of the housing period and adding an extra meal, I can make that existing silage go a bit further. And um, the final thing then to look at is stock. Are you carrying passengers that you don't need to house for the winter? And um, there's still empty uh, suckler cows being carried on farms. Should they be sold and the money freed up to buy extra meal to feed the animals that are, that are already there? <clears throat> and as Lorcan was saying, all of this has to be done uh, within a budget. Uh, what money have you available to you? If you're going to be short cash for the winter, do something about it now. If it means clearing a stocking loan, starting again, or looking at your overdraft facilities, whatever can be managed to make sure that you don't hit the wall in January. We'll leave it there. Thank you both very much for coming in to us. Now we're off to the Burren where Sylvester Phelan caught up with one Clare farmer who's preparing to drive his cattle from the lowlands up to the highlands for winter grazing. John Marinan is a participant farmer in the Burren programme in County Clare. Three quarters of his 338 acre farm that we visited are winterage for his cattle, which will soon be put to good use. We put on our cows here, I suppose, the 1st of November, depending on the weather, and uh, put them on to different plots all around the farm here. And uh, 50 cows we keep, we keep about 50 suckler cows, mainly Shirley, Aberdeen Angus, Hereford, generally all breeds of cows. But uh, I went into the Burn Farming for Conservation program back in 2010. Now it has been the single most brilliant scheme that has ever come the way for me it has made serious serious changes here to the farm like for instance like the, you could be talking for ages about it but there's a road traveling right through the center of the farm which is a green road and when i when i joined the scheme you could barely walk in the road the bushes had closed in both sides of it but uh, the scheme helped me to cut back the bushes and rebuild the walls so it's brilliant for the tourists from an environmental point of view, it has made great changes as well here. We have a lot of walls rebuilt that our forefathers would have built before us. Uh, really and truly, there was a lot of work to be done here on this farm, as my uncle really never participated in any of the schemes back along through the years, RIPs or other of the environmental schemes, so we had it pretty much all to do. We have improved water courses here on the farm, which is a great environmental benefit to me and to everybody else, and for the cattle as well. We keep the cattle out of the water courses, uh, pipe water to troughs, which are funded by the Burn Programme. Dr. Brendan Dunford, of course, and Dr. Shannon Pear are heading the programme up here in Cairn. Uh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant scheme. We're so proud and happy to be in it. It has made farming very interesting and exciting. There are exciting times we're living in at the moment. We're creating plots back on, on the farm, which is making the farm a lot more easier to, to herd. Now, we come along, as I say, the 1st of November with our cows, and we put them into all different plots. Each plot is different size, different quality. But the secret is to graze down the winterages that we see here all around us, all the rank vegetation, all the grasses have to get grazed down. We have a very good scoring system up in, in Cairn. It's all to get the grazing right, which encourages the flora and fauna to grow in the summertime, the springtime. And if we get the grazing right, there's a good benefit financially from it.
Asked about the future of farming in the region, John highlighted that getting younger people to farm in the burn is challenging. He said that, in his own case, he is doing his best to make farming as simple as possible for his daughters, should they be interested in taking over. You've got to be cut out for it. It's as simple as that. You've got to be cut out for it. It has to be in your bones, your DNA. But I love it. I love it. I wouldn't be at anything else. Dr. Brendan Dunford, the manager of the Burren programme, joins us now. Brendan, the, the programme has been running since 2004. You started off with 20 farmers and you've really improved things and progressed since then. Can you tell us about the programme and how many farmers are involved now and at what scale you're working at? Yeah, it's really grown over the years and nicely and organically. So we started off with 20 research farmers back in 2004 and today we have about 330 farmers who manage about 80 to 90% of the landscape. So it's quite a significant programme at this stage and it brings about 10 million euros, I think, over the course of the programme will be brought into the uh, burn as a result into farmers' pockets. So environmentally, we think it's a very strong programme, but economically and socially as well, we think it's making a big change to the burn landscape. And how is that... Uh how are the how's the average farmer doing from that? You're saying 10 million. What's the average farmer get, and is it is it a results based? Yeah, so this program is a little bit different as agri environmental programs go. It's very much targeted to the burn farmer, uh, and it's split into two payments every year. So one payment you get for doing work. So we give every farmer an allowance to do work to improve the environment on his farm. So that could be fixing walls, improving the water supplies, removing invasive scrub. And then we also pay the farmer um, a certain amount based on the environmental health of each field on the farm. So it's like taking your animals to the market. The better condition your field is in environmentally, the more money you get paid. Uh, so farmers on average um, across the board would get about 6,500 would be the average payment. But because it's performance based, um, it can be up to 15. So it can be as little as a few hundred or as much as 15,000. Depends on how much work the farmer does, how much, how, how, what condition his land is in and also um, the uh, size of the farm. At the moment, agriculture faces a lot of challenges uh, in terms of climate change and preserving biodiversity. How is the Burren programme fitting into that space and what can farmers learn from it and what can, what can the country learn from it? You know, we, we're cap reform coming down the road. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's a very interesting question because there is a lot of change and questioning about the farming at the moment and its role in society. We've always viewed farming in the Burren as being primarily about food production. But we also understand that farming is always about, also about delivering wonderful things like landscape, biodiversity, water quality, carbon sequestration, all of those things. And what we've done with the Burn programme is we've rewarded farmers when they deliver these outcomes. And that's very important because society really wants better biodiversity, better water quality, uh, a better climate. And farmers, in, in, especially in the Irish context, are the ones to deliver on the coalface. So the Burn programme, what's special about that is that it provides a mechanism through which we can reward farmers who deliver for the environment and deliver for society. So that's the lesson we have to share on that is that, you know, with targeted research, with proper uh, financial support and with a little bit of uh, encouragement, I think farmers can really deliver more than just food. They can uh, reinvent themselves as farmers and as an industry to be uh, providers of a range of ecosystem services as well as great food providers. And the Winterage Festival, which is coming up next week, is a really strong example of that. The, the festival itself, um, it's, it really, farmers get to see the reverse of, of what people are used to maybe at this time of the year where, where stock um, are brought in 
uh, to be housed for the winter. But what's going to happen next week down in Clare? So we have this amazing tradition in Clare called and Galway called the uh, Burn Winterage System, whereby farmers bring the cattle to the hills in wintertime. And people wonder, why would you do that? Well, the burn is one big tablet of limestone. So effectively, it's like an underfloor heating system for cattle. Uh, when they're out there in the wintertime, they've got plenty of calcium-rich water to drink and they've probably got the greatest palate of, of, of vegetation and flora and fauna to eat, well, flora at least, to eat uh, out there in the grassland. So lots of nice herbs and stuff like that, which remain edible and uh, nutritious throughout the winter. So they have plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and they have what's called a dry lie as well. So I always think of the burn like a five-star hotel for cattle during wintertime. So we're celebrating that every year because it's important to acknowledge uh, the, the role that farming plays in this amazing landscape of the burn. And we have a little festival every year called the Burn Winterage Weekend, where uh, the culmination of which is where farmers bring their cattle up to the hills uh, uh, and invite uh, the community, the broader community, to go with them, to join with them in this ancient tradition, which really captures not just the importance of these traditional farming systems, but also what they give to us uh, as a society, what they give to us in terms of tradition, culture, biodiversity, landscape. So it's a lovely way to acknowledge that, the Burn Winterage uh, weekend. And the walk this year will be on uh, the 28th of October in a place called Abbey Hill in the North Burren. And so how long will the cattle stay up on the, the burn landscape? Will they come down for, for calving? It depends. You see, the wonderful thing in the burn is that every farmer has a different system. So normally cattle go up in October, uh, around October, and start coming down then in, from January onwards. But the old system would have them come back down in April when the first spring grasses are available in the lowlands. So normally around six months they'll spend on the hills before they come back down to the lowland pastures uh, uh, during summertime. And what about the impact of that on the on the biodiversity and preserving the biodiversity of the burren? Um, if if winterage wasn't happening, what what then? Well, if you didn't have the system of winter grazing, and that's my introduction to the burn twenty years ago, was as a researcher uh, to identify the fact that if you take winter grazing out of the system, the flowers start to disappear, and what replaces them are rank grasses and ultimately scrub, hazel, and blackthorn in particular. So which are a nice habitat in themselves, but they're replacing some of the rarest and best grasslands in Europe. So without farming, we don't get the biodiversity. And that's why we must support uh, technically and in terms of resources, but also celebrate uh, the role of farming in the landscape, which is what the Winter Weekend is all about. And so what is the, the ultimate aim of the Burham project, of the Burham programme? What is the ultimate aim for that uh, down the line? You have funding now for another five years. and yeah. um, What's the ultimate goal? Well, I think we're looking now, uh, thanks to the Department of Agriculture, we've got funding for the next five years, which really allows us to, to develop and to really work hard with the farmers to improve the condition of the landscape. But beyond that, I'd like to see this programme continue and expand in the burn and the ideas from this programme be adopted elsewhere, as they are being doing at the moment through the EIP process, which is, which is really fa fantastic. But in future, I'd also like to see the burn farmers benefit more from their role as custodians of the landscape through maybe um, agro-tourism or through new product development or through education. I think farmers are the best educators I've ever come across. Uh, in my life because they've got such an authentic relationship with the land because so much so many great stories to tell and I think they have a role uh, a new role in society as well as, as teaching people about the connection with the land and with nature because we're all getting so divorced from the land and from from agriculture these days I think farmers can play a role in that in the future as well. And the success and achievements of the Burren have been widely acknowledged in Europe in recent years. And you also have an award ceremony taking place next week, uh, Farming for Nature. Yeah, so we had this lovely award system in the Burren sponsored by Borbia over the years where we celebrated the farmers who had achieved most under our programme because we wanted to say thank you to these guys for doing such a wonderful job and also to 
put these guys up there as role models for really sustainable farming because they're producing good quality stock and actually increasing stock numbers in many cases, but they're also managing this amazing environment. And it worked so well um, uh, in the burn, we decided to try and see if we could have a national awards uh, system because I meet farmers all the time who I think are doing amazing work. It's easy for academics or policymakers to tell us what we should be doing for nature, but these guys who do it every day on the ground, they should be thanked and they should be celebrated. And that's what we're doing today. And we're also saying that this is what you know farming can be like. You know, not everybody is going to be green, green, environmentally green. Or but in really productive land, yeah, working exactly. on really productive land. But of the six uh, shortlisted finalists this year, we have farmers from some of the best land in Ireland. But they're bringing their community with them to actually incorporate environmental uh, concerns um, uh, into their farming system as well. So there's people from Ackle, there's people from Cork, there's people from Wicklow, people who are doing great things for nature and deserve to be uh, rewarded. And not only that, they should be the spokespeople, not me, but they should be the spokespeople for nature uh, and farmland in Ireland. So we're delighted to welcome the finalists to Clare this year and I'd encourage everybody to look at the videos and to vote for these farmers because they're great people and we'd love to see uh, uh, the public support them and acknowledge the role that they play for society. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Brendan. And uh, we also have to say congratulations to yourself because you were awarded a doctorate at NUI Galway this week. So congratulations to yourself on all the work that you're doing. And Thanks so much. That's, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to all our guests and to our sponsors, Homeland. If you want to get in touch with the Farmland or Agriland teams, you can call or email us or reach out on our social media channels. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time.